Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome, George Simmons, to this EduTrends and web uh, cast uh, of the Institute for the Future of Education. We are very happy to have you here today. Uh, we are in the middle of uh, the International Conference of uh, Educational Innovation. Unfortunately, you couldn't make it here face to face, but we're happy to have this conversation with you as always. Well, thank you, and, and uh, I, I deeply regret not being able to be there in person. I think there are a number of universities and organizations around the world that, that uh, have been leading lights and making big changes around innovation, and your institute is certainly one of them. And I've long had a desire to visit Monterey. I, I was actually born in Mexico, but moved before I learned Spanish about, about a year or two earlier. So I regret that, but I, I still, you know, Mexico is still my birth country. And so um, um, I was talking to my mom actually just last week and I mentioned I was going to be in Monterey and she said that she was born there. Uh, and she said she actually had eye surgery in Monterey, um, you know, when she was a four-year-old girl. So there, there is at some level a connection there personally, but in the long yeah. run, uh, it's the innovation that you're doing that, that excites me. And I'm grateful that we have this time to, to spend together talking. Yes, so more, more things to strengthen our connections. And you are the Director of Learning, Innovation and Network Knowledge Research Lab at the University of Texas in Arlington. And the conversation will be around um, learning analytics and data science and education. But I was willing to ask you this first question of some of your past work around MOOCs. You were one of the co-creators of uh, MOOCs. And, uh, and uh, this technology has evolved a lot. And I would like to know your opinion if we can still call them MOOCs. Uh, or is this something completely different than what you imagine? It's it's different, and and so so one of the things, and, and I'm sure we'll get to to a number of different points, especially around learning analytics and a few other areas. But uh, so broadly speaking, um, the original goal with MOOCs, for me at least, was to go out and uh, try and do for teaching what things like uh, Open Courseware Initiative from MIT and other universities had done for content, and it seemed to me that. At minimum, if we don't have interaction, if the main thing we're doing is just lecturing or providing content, then on the internet that can scale um, with very low cost. You know, it's not like if I'm physically in, in a room, there's one of me and 25 students. Now, if you suddenly give me 50 students or 100 students or 1,000 students, depending on the type of classroom, I need a bigger classroom, I need a bigger space, I need a, you know, and the list goes on. So digital settings, though, that's not needed. In digital settings, I can uh, broadcast to a million people and not really have a sustained increase in my cost of lecturing. So what that does, it creates a problem and an opportunity. Um, the problem is we ask ourselves, is this the best way for people to learn is through lectures? Because if I can scale from 20 people online to 1,000 people or a million people online, the question starts to become, what does lecturing add as a value in our existing university systems? The opportunity it creates is the ability for people to become co-teachers in a course. So if, let's say, you and I and 100 other people were in a course and there's a faculty member delivering a lecture, when we go to group work, I may not have understand something that the lecturer said, but you might. And so then I would ask you and I would say, did you hear what she said? And then you would say, oh, she meant this. 
And then you can start to teach me. And there's that co-teaching that begins to happen when you connect students to other students. So one of the drawbacks of an existing lecture environment is that it only connects students primarily to the teacher's lecture, but in an, an open online course or in the internet in general, it, we are connected to one another. And that's where it changes the nature of teaching and that's where the opportunity lies. My original goal was that the opportunity of co-teaching and learning with peers from around the world was the intent of open online courses. Now, as you're likely aware of what's happened with the big providers that are now doing open online courses like Coursera and FutureLearn and, and others, their, their focus is heavily on still lecture format, but online. Now they've added a little more self-regulated learning, but you still click through and click through. And there's not that kind of dynamic knowledge creation where we teach one another that I envisioned with early MOOCs. So that's a bit of a background setup. But my point is, I do think MOOCs still play an important role, um, especially the big providers. There are tens of millions of students from around the world who have had access to learning opportunities that they didn't have before. But by the same account, it's not the kind of pedagogy that I think drives innovation and creation. And that's where I'm a little disappointed where we landed. Thank you. Uh, well, the uh, MOOC's uh, experience is very, um, I would say, one-sided in general. It's more like a transmission model, uh, the way that is, is based. Uh, the the, the MOOCs, not as you were thinking about them or designing them, but the way they evolved uh, to be. And during the last 20 months of the pandemic, the remote learning that we have had has been mostly uh, in, um, in, in one direction. So what yeah. uh, do you think should be the way to, to improve uh, that kind of learning online? Well, there's, so first of all, it's important to note that different subject areas and different levels of knowledge have a different requirement in the relationship between uh, lecturing and uh, that type of transmission format versus active engaged learning. So in many cases, I do think, especially if you're completely new to a domain area, it's helpful to have an expert provide a few lectures around what are the key topics, the key points, and so on. So I want to emphasize that I'm not against lecturing. I enjoy a good lecture. I love uh, hearing a you know keynote at a conference who spent her career pulling you know, insights from uh, her research and then presenting that in a succinct, informed type of an approach. What I'm against is lectures as the primary mechanism of helping students learn. So to get to your question, I just want to put that as a background. I think we need to recognize that a lot of the, the opportunities that uh, exist in that relationship between co-creation and lecturing is based on the learner's level of knowledge and the type of content or interactions that they're learning. Um, and, and so different by different disciplines. Where co-creation starts to become, I think, really important is, and the skills that are needed is, I think, the primary barrier to us doing a better job with it. So if you're learning with peers, there's a few skills that you need that our current education system doesn't intentionally communicate. So one skill that you need is what I'll call active co-creation. And that is that as an individual, you have to create artifacts. Now, these artifacts could be GIFs or images or videos or you know podcasts or it could be a blog post and then as these these resources are are created you share them and you share them uh, so that others can interact with them. That act of sharing an artifact is the key point to to peer based learning because then someone else can see what you created. 
they can then take it, improve it, make it better, incorporate it into their own work, and so on. So the heart of learning in a peer-based way is artifact generation. And like I said, that artifact can be anything from an image to, to a blog post to a podcast. The skills needed to participate in that are a little bit of you know courageousness. You have to be willing to put yourself out there to have your peers comment on your work. Um, you have to also, when others share their resources, you have to have skill sets, all for lack of a better word, of kindness and consideration, meaning that if someone else shares something you don't agree with, you're still thoughtful, recognizing that it was a creative outlet. And so I think those, as a starting point, is the, you know, so the courage to put your ideas out there and the kindness to interact meaningfully with other ideas are, are key parts of being effective. But then there's a range of what I'll call and, and well, not I, but many have called executive functioning skills. And this, I think, is important, especially as we start to see things like artificial intelligence become more prominent in education. And these are skills like the uh, ability to self-regulate, the ability to set your goals, the ability to monitor progress to your goals, and so on. Because those are things right now that I don't think artificial intelligence will replace in the short term. In the long run, they may replace it. And AI may make those kinds of learning experiences completely uh, different. But for now, our ability to socially interact with one another, to connect meaningfully with one another, um, are, and, and to, to support and be kind and be thoughtful, those are the kinds of areas where uh, we, we, I think the future of learning rests because learning content is something that AI is going to do much better than we can. And in many cases, in certain fields, at least is already doing better than we can. So I'm bringing two ideas together there. To answer your question, those kinds of attributes are important. Uh, Self-regulation, you know, courage to create resources, kindness to interact meaningfully with others. That's where I think social co-created learning is going to flourish in MOOCs or in digital settings, especially at the tail end of a pandemic. It could just be in a regular university course. This is where learning should be most importantly directed. Secondly, when we direct learners into developing those kinds of self-regulation and executive function skills, we're actually, for lack of a better word, inoculating them against some of the effects of artificial intelligence because we're giving them skill sets and capabilities that AI is not going to replace in the short term. That reminds me, um, Joseph, Joseph own book uh, that uh, he presented here a few years ago, uh, Delivering a Robot-Proof Education, his, uh, the title is How Can You Blind Yourself Against uh, uh, Automatization? And uh, the, the short answer to that will be putting an emphasis on the things that make us human, more human. No? So, and it's very exactly. related with the humanities or liberal arts, as you call it in English generally. That uh, you learn, those, you learn uh, indirectly uh, those skills that make you more human. Exactly, and I think those are the key the key attributes that we need to start thinking about. Because, and one of the there's a number of reasons, but you know, one of them obviously is automation and AI and so on. But you know, another reason that we often don't think about, it, it, at least I haven't heard much discussion about, is that in almost all fields, what we knew. Uh, before isn't really needed right now. And you might have heard this term being used, like it's this concept of the half-life of knowledge, which means that the knowledge that's required in many disciplines is obsolete very quickly. And because it's obsolete so quickly, it becomes quite important that we um, don't just teach people to know things, we teach people to be 
certain kinds of people, right? Because it's the being part. That's the part that lasts. And knowing is changing like this. Like what we knew, we didn't even know about COVID 20 some months ago. And now it dominates our news cycle. And every day there's new information that invalidates or replaces old information. So my point is the ability to think like a scientist, the ability to set goals and achieve those goals when you're learning, those are the ones that are going to last. What we know is actually in some parts the least stable aspect of our education system today, which is a bit concerning because communicating what we know to students is the whole central part of the education system as it's designed. And that, that needs to change. We need to be less focused on communicating what we know right now and more interested in communicating scientific mindsets, the ability to evaluate information critically, the ability to create, the ability to share, and so on. So it's exactly like you said, we have to move toward these human skills that allow us to be active, ongoing scientists rather than someone who just knows things because the things we know are going to be obsolete in a year or two years or definitely five years or 10 years. So you, you made a, a connection uh, of this with artificial intelligence in terms of uh, the uh, uh, blinding us against uh, the things that artificial intelligence would make obsolete in the future. Um, I'm talking about the future of jobs. But yeah. uh, um, also artificial intelligence and data science uh, have become pervasive in, in many um, uh, industries. And uh, maybe one of, of, of the big industries, the, one, the, the, the last one to be a heavy user of that is education. What's your vision of the future of the use of artificial intelligence in data science and education? That's a great question. And, and that's one that um, is going to take us, you know, a decade or more to figure out as an, as an institution of higher education. Um, so I, I work with, uh, you know, I have a, a center, you know, in uh, Australia called the Center for Changing Complexity and Learning. And it's, we have a really talented group of researchers there. In fact, I think we have seven of the, the top 12 cited scholars in the, uh, in, in the learning analytics field affiliated with, with that particular um, center. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at is exactly this question, is what is it going to look like in the future when AI is involved in learning activities? Now, right now, there's a lot of illustrations where, oh, you know, AI could you know, help with making sense of enrollment data, or it could help make sense of the best, path, best pathways and trajectories for students through a particular set of resources and so on. But that's not, um, you know, that doesn't impact learning. That's more like it influences the administration of the uh, learning systems that, that are available. And so what we really want to start thinking about is, okay, if that's, you know, the, the opportunity that exists, then how do we realize the automation capabilities that artificial intelligence might provide? And there's a few areas where I think there's good potential, but also concern. So one of the biggest challenges I think educators need to uh, keep their eyes on is what are we gaining and what are we losing through automation and through AI in general? So if one of the things I mentioned earlier, the key skill that we're going to need going forward is uh, executive functioning skills and metacognition and those kinds of attributes. Well, right now, what I'm seeing with some AI systems is they actually eliminate the need for students to practice those capabilities. It'll come by and nudge students, oh, now you should do this and now you should do that. And it's, it, that, and it's removing a key decision-making skill from that student. What should I learn next? If an AI system just nudges you and moves you in a direction, 
you're not grappling with that point of confusion and making decision about what's important, what matters, does this relate to my goal, and so on. And so what I'm worried about is that some of the current generation of AI functionality is actually dumbing humans down so that they can better participate in an AI economy because it's teaching sort of obedience over critical thinking, if you will. And so my argument uh, has been that the development of these executive function skills should be the key role of the existing education system so that we have that ability to minimize the effects of, of AI on just our learning and our learning practices. So that's where I do see AI used in learning activities. Uh, I'm seeing it used, I think, the wrong way. And uh, I would like to see AI support the building of learner profiles, for example. That, I think, remains one of the big unaddressed questions in the educational technology landscape is a, is a developed profile of an individual student, what he knows, how she's come to learn it, and what the effects of it are. That's something that AI can do well. Um, AI can also uh, do a lot of work around recommendation, creating pathways through complex landscapes, synthesizing information, and so on to help make those things more accessible to individual uh, learners. But right now, we're not seeing that yet. We're actually seeing AI is making humans less human by nudging them into the right pathway through curriculum or the right profile that they should pursue, rather than making them more human, which means it should take care of the automated routine tasks and it should emphasize the development of executive function skills. So I know that's a little bit off track. You were asking what's, what, what is the potential of AI, and I think I answered it by saying what are the worries I have about AI. But the potentials of AI, I think, are, like I said, administrative, creating profiles of learners that learners can then evaluate, interact with, and determine their own goals and goal setting. And I think the final point that I've mentioned already is AI should enable more human attributes, such as goal orientation, goal tracking, goal monitoring, executive function, and self-regulation. When, when you say creating profiles of learners, you mean... Uh the professor can understand the profiles of the learners. Uh, it's a sort of a diagnosis of the learning individual. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly it. And I, or another way to look at it is to say that when a student is involved in, um, you know, in learning, you know, she's constantly generating data and that data gives an indication of what does the student know? Um, how has she come to know it? And I, I would say a profile should have at least four attributes about a student. One, it should know the cognitive performance. You know, what does this student know? So there's a cognitive lens. The second thing a profile should address is uh, the, the affective dynamics or the emotional dynamics, and meaning it should give you some indication of who the student is in terms of attributes and characteristics related to sort of affect and emotion. Um, it should also uh, capture social components. How does this student interact with and connect with other people within courses and classrooms? Because as I was saying earlier, when we're learning in a co-creation way, it's really important that we are uh, connected to other people because we're creating, sharing, and interacting with the outputs and the artifacts that someone else has created. And then finally, um, the, the uh, attributes that uh, the student needs to have, which I've already addressed, relates sort of to the metacognitive aspect, which is sort of the monitoring and the self-monitoring of their own goals. So those four attributes, cognition, affect, social, and metacognition, should be reflected in a profile of a learner. And I have some colleagues, uh, Rebecca Moroni and Vidimir Kovanovich um, at uh, the Center for Change and Complexity and Learning, 
whose focus is on exactly that. They're working with school systems on building these kinds of profiles based on available data of students, or in some cases, you might have to add some surveys and sampling to get a better understanding. And over time, you, you have this nuanced representation that a teacher can look at and say, oh, this student needs to develop you know, his critical thinking skills, or this student needs to do a better job with goal orientation and goal setting. So the profile is what we're right now calling a transcript or a report card or so on, but it's much richer and it's developed in near real time. Great. So, um, what, what are the um, obstacles right now to uh, do that more like in scale and higher education? What are the things that we can, we should do? Well, one of the first obstacles actually uh, is that we, we don't have the right data infrastructure in order to make those kinds of changes. And so um, what I'm referring to with that is, you know, the ability to, well, let's try again, the, the types of resources and technological and otherwise that a company like Amazon or Google has Uh, that scale of both data, but the ability to manage data, you know, through data lakes and through machine learning environments uh, that are, are incorporated into their, their big data system means that Twitter and Facebook and, and Microsoft and others can give us recommendations in real time. Now, most universities' data environments are not as capable. In fact, I'll say all, pretty much, meaning you can't in real time give feedback to a student that now that you've mastered this topic, you should learn this topic or in near real time suggesting that, you know, you misunderstood that you should redo this particular remedial resource. Quite often, you know, those resources are, they come, that kind of analysis comes by, uh, you know, later or even a day later, or it depends on the kind of infrastructure. If you have a traditional relational database, for example, That kind of near real-time uh, computation is, is not the easiest to do at scale across, let's say, you know, in the case of your institution where you may have you know, 50 or 100,000 students, that, that data environment doesn't exist. So I think first and foremost, and this is something that you know, a group of uh, teams actually at Facebook did a number of years ago when they started developing the architecture for, for a um, real-time a data lake that provides adaptive ongoing feedback. Most universities aren't at that space yet. And they, you know, it may be years till we're there. So short view is one, we don't have the right data environment to act the way that we experience when we're on Twitter or social media or many online environments. So uh, that that's one of the first things that we need. Secondly, well, maybe this should actually be first, but it's vision creation. I think that's the one difficulty I find in universities in general is that having a coherent, significant vision of the kind of model or structures that our universities should be and should achieve and should pursue, that's a big open-ended question. And I think a lot of organizations don't know what it is that they want to be. A lot of leadership is grappling with what are our goals, what's our mission, how do we, what's our unique value point in a complex digital world and so on. So those are the kinds of questions that I continue to find, I think, really challenging to, to address because if you don't have leadership actively out there creating and contributing to and sharing some of these, these resources and, and, and creating, for lack of a better word, the new reality that I think all of us expect will be the norm, If you don't have leadership that's addressing that, um, I think you're facing a, a really difficult task. Uh, one illustration, and you're likely to be familiar with this, is we knew digital technologies were going to be influential in education back in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? As soon as learning management systems showed up, as soon as digital environments showed up, 
we knew they were going to be important. And we had 20 years for universities to begin to take advantage of digital technologies. Some did. There's some innovative universities. I mean, I've been affiliated with Athabasca University in the past. Uh, I know, uh, you know, a colleague at University of Texas um, in, in Arlington, Pete Smith, ran a di distance education environment that was the top nursing program for, for you know, digital online learning in the country. Um, University of South Australia, where C3L is located, uh, announced an online initiative about three or four years ago. You know, and the list goes on. Some universities did. But many universities didn't. They largely ignored the digital technologies. And then as digital uh, technologies became more rampant, they didn't have the existing capabilities. And they ended up having to partner with external companies and corporations to help them develop their online profile. So I think that's the challenge that I see is uh, that, that we lack leadership that creates, that has the vision to prepare for the future. And uh, that's what worries me most, I think, about these, these different emerging technologies and opportunities that are coming up, is I'm not convinced that most universities have the quality of leadership to be able to meet that challenge. Great. So, uh, just to relate to that, we, we did a study two years ago, just before the pandemic, in nine Latin American countries with the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, and uh, related to the use of technology in universities, we asked around 9,000 uh, professors from different universities in th those nine countries, uh, what was the state of uh, the use of technology for learning no, in their institutions? And one of the things that struck me the most is that uh, the universities they were working in uh, didn't have or, or they didn't know that they had a vision on the use of technology in general. So it's something that uh, when you go to a, a company, a, a retail company, uh, uh, in, uh, whatever industry you're uh, big, those big industries, entertainment, pharmacies, et cetera, they have a vision of how technology should be used and it's shared by every member of the organization. So it's, there's a lack of um, certain leadership skills in terms of uh, the use of technology and in particular in AI and, and learning science uh, and, and data science, sorry. So I, I understand that that's part of the goal that you wanna achieve with uh, this new initiative that you're launching, the Global Research Alliance for AI in Learning, uh, Ryo. Yeah, well, and thank you. I was actually, <laughs> it's, we're, we're in sync uh, because I was just thinking as you were sharing your study, I thought, well, that's what I'm hoping to see we can do with Grail, right? I'm hoping that we can um, take advantage. So one way to describe it, I, I was talking to, to actually someone at the conference yesterday. I, I have a number of meetings online, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm at least feeling, like I said to you before our call here, I'm at least feeling like I'm honoring the commitment that I made with, with your very important conference. And I do hope to visit you in person early in 2022. Um, but um, I was saying, you know, there are certain things, and this isn't the best example, it's the best I could come up with. But let's say there's 10 of us in a room and we're drinking coffee. And now we all need our own coffee cup, right? We can't share a coffee cup that probably won't work terribly well, but we don't all need our own teaspoon, right? To stir our, if you add milk or sugar or whatever else. So we all need our own coffee cup, but we can share a teaspoon. And so we need one teaspoon for 10 people, but we need 10 mugs for 10 people. And so what I'm trying to do with Grail is to find what are the places where we can overlap? 
where we can share resources. Can we share resources around data? Can we share resources around infrastructure? Can we share resources around short courses that help develop leadership's capability to work with artificial intelligence and so on? So these are the kinds of resources that I think uh, we can learn to share. Now, it's not the best example, but you know, let's just say that 95% of what we do as a university is unique to us. I, I don't think it's that high, but let's just say it's 95%. And let's say you have a university that has a budget of $100 million, which is, you know, most universities are quite a bit larger than that. But let's say if you, your institution, University of Texas, Arizona State University, uh, Monash, University of South Australia, uh, National University, but let's say a group of universities get together and say, you know what, we all share these same expenses, these same data resources, these same model building, these same uh, AI chatbots. Why don't we share that 5% and that 5% when we share it becomes 50% value back to the institution. So you might choose to allocate a small part of shared overlap to produce the intended outcome that you aren't producing with the current system. So I think that's the vision that I have for Grail uh, is this sense that we have a place where we build technical capabilities. We build the uh, we host a discussion to make sense of AI in education in general. Uh, with a group of colleagues globally, and that we have a capacity building opportunity so that as AI starts to impact the education system more and more, we don't have to outsource that expertise, just like you mentioned with the study that you did with a group of professors across Latin American countries. So that's the vision, at least, behind it. And, and I think we gain a lot in universities and higher education by sharing across national and international borders. Yes, the pandemic has shown us the importance of sharing. So I, I hope that uh, what uh, you're preparing uh, is uh, uh, along those lines and will be very successful. Uh, once again, uh, thank you. Thanks a lot, George, for this interesting uh, discussion. We enjoy it a lot, and I hope that our audience also will enjoy it. Great. Thank you. And like I said, I, I'm excited for a chance early in the year to uh, meet and spend time with you and your colleagues in person. I appreciate this opportunity. We will be happy to receive you here. Thank you. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Gijosa. Post-production, Alejandro Sanchez. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.